0: Well, good morning to everyone. It is a great joy to see you all. Um, First and foremost, I want to say thank you to Betty for essentially running the show for like the last five minutes, ten minutes. Usually we have one person do one of each of those four parts, and Betty's willingly did them all. So thank you, Betty. Um, If I haven't yet gotten to meet you, my name is Jameson. It's a great joy to serve as one of the pastors here at Christian Covenant Fellowship. And before we get into Exodus chapter 2, I'm going to pray for us And ask God to be speaking to us during this time. So if you don't have your Bibles open, this is a great time to turn there. But also join me in prayer as we ask God to be speaking through Exodus chapter 2. Father, we thank you so much that every time we come to open your word, that we trust that you are indeed speaking. Lord, we, we just count this great promise that every time your word goes out, it never returns void. We know that that's true even today. Regardless of what sort of struggles or joys or uh, anxieties or even anticipations we have brought into this room, Lord, we know that you are the one who is sovereignly speaking when your word is proclaimed. And so I ask you to fill me with your spirit this morning. That I would proclaim what's in Exodus 2 and how it points to and directs our attention to Jesus Christ and all of the Gospels. And Lord, I do pray and ask that uh, you would indeed enliven our our hearts, and open our eyes to see you in this text, to see this story from 3,500 years ago as relevant for us today as we look to the God who delivers a people to dwell with himself. And God, remind us that we are indeed meant to enjoy you more than anything. So we pray that your word would be our rule, your spirit our teacher. Your glory, our concern, and your son, our joy, as we study, we listen, and then we leave exalting in his name. We ask this all to be done for your glory and in your name. Amen. Amen. So, we resume Exodus chapter 2 this morning. But first, got to tell you, two weeks ago, I made a statement to my wife that I have never made in our seven years of marriage. Here's what it is. Honey... I'm excited to go to the theater, honey. I'm excited to go to the th- like the show, like a th- actual theatrical production. She's never gone to me to a theatrical show without me falling asleep or begrudgingly saying, "Okay, maybe." But in November, our very talented piano player Mitchell will be starring in Disney's production of Frozen at the Marion Civic Center. So of course, I am excited to go to the theater and see him perform. And and this prompted this new curiosity in all things theater for me, who comes from a background of all things athletics. And come to know, not only from Mitchell, but some research, in the theater world, there's often more going on behind the stage than on the set, or than on in front of what meets the eye. There's more happening I don't even know the terminology. There's more happening behind the curtain than on the stage. And this is so exciting to me because I'm like, oh, on the stage there seems like there's so much action. But then behind the curtain there's like props being set up, actors being all queued up, perfect precision timing. All to be unfolded and unraveled and and put on the stage right at the right moment for us to enjoy. When we get to Exodus chapter 2, essentially we are reminded that God's story is always a work of two scenes. Two stages, so to say. We, we're usually able to see what he's doing in our present life, the situations and circumstances we're aware of, but God is always acting to do much more than meets our eye. God is always acting in history and for, from eternity past to eternity future to bring about his purposes through his plans and his power. And in Exodus 2, we are reminded not to have a one perspective view of God and his ability and his work, but to instead remember that this is indeed the God who acts in all eternity in ways we see, ways we don't see, all for our good and his glory. And so in Exodus chapter 2, as we resume this ancient story, story 3,500 years ago, God's people Israel and slavery in Egypt, We hear words that are timelessly relevant, even for you and I, in Carterville 2019. And they all center around this big idea. God acts. Two words for X's too, sum it up. God acts. And so the question that you and I have to wrestle wrestle with is, will we depend on and look to the God who acts, even when we don't see, hear, or know what that looks like? And so in Exodus chapter 2, we're going to see a lot. We're going to see God act to save his people. We're going to act to see God sanctify a deliverer and then promise security and safekeeping from now until he sends the ultimate exodus in Jesus Christ. So we see God act to save, to sanctify, and secure, beginning in verse 1 to 10, where we see God acting to bring about miraculous salvation, Let's turn to verse 1 and 2 as we work our way expositionally through God's Word. So in verse 1, Exodus 2, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to use the one under your seat. I encourage you to see that these are not my words, these are God's words. And we're going to be on page 45 of the Bibles that are under your chair. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that the child was a fine child... She hid him three months. You ever heard of a new mom who hid their baby for three months? Kind of, kind of a weird start to chapter two, but it makes sense when you remember where we are. Remember what's going on? These, these Levite man, this Levite woman, Moses' parents, they are, of course, excited to be new parents, but they're also living in Egypt under Pharaoh's harsh rule, his order of infanticide, saying, I want to kill every Hebrew baby boy. Two Levites, Hebrews, now having a baby? Of course they're going to be scared. They're probably not sending out the greeting cards and the announcement invitations. They're trying to keep this baby hidden. And for three months. You ever been around a three-month-old? I have recently <laughs> for a long time. And it's hard to keep those little guys hidden. They're poopy. They're whiny. They need to eat all the time. And yet Moses' mom keeps this little baby boy hidden for three months. Mom of the year props. And she does so to protect his life. But then he begins to grow up. Let's go back to verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. Not exactly ace hardware. She put the child in it, and she placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And her sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. All right, so Moses is growing up. There's the order to kill every Hebrew baby boy. And mom is afraid, so she does what she can with what she has. She assembles a basket, bitumen, uh, what else did it say? Pitch and uh, bulrushes, like reeds. A handmade basket of reeds. This is not plan A. No one registers on the nursery for the nursery basket that goes in the Nile River made of bitumen and pitch. In order for her to keep Moses alive, she's resorted to essentially plan Z. <laughs> I'm going to put together a basket, put him in it, and hope that in the midst of the greatest river that I know, he's going to make it. And yet so often, doesn't God seem to be using us and reminding us to depend on his only given means of salvation? This was all she could do to keep her baby safe. Plan Z. And so often in our lives, God only has one possible plan after you and I have tried plan A, B, C, D, all the way to Z. And we've come to the end of ourselves and seen we only needed his plan. And so that's what God provides here. A little basket. And the word that he's using here for basket literally means ark. 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 You and I, that ring a bell for anyone else? It would for the Hebrew, too. See, when they hear basket, a.k.a. ark, they're thinking Noah. They're thinking good things. They're thinking deliverance, however unlikely it might have been. Genesis chapter 6 to 8. God says, "I'm gonna, I'm going to flood the earth with my wrath against man's sin. But I'm going to have this man build a homemade ark and then fill it with animals and his family, and invite anyone who wants to believe in him to get into that boat and bring about salvation. Believe it or not, it happened. God provided a single and yet sufficient source of salvation. In, back in Exodus 2, only one source of salvation, and yet we know Moses comes through it. And so for you and I, the ark in Genesis, the basket in Exodus 2, points us forward to our need for deliverance, our need for God's single plan. After we've tried our plan A of cleaning ourselves up, our plan B of paying him back and trying to earn our forgiveness, well, he gives us the only plan we've ever needed, plan Z, and his name is Jesus Christ. See, when we read this, we can hear about the story of a basket, yes, But we can also hear about the story of a son to come about 1,500 years after this basket delivers Egypt's or Israel's deliverer, Moses. See, Jesus has come to do what no ark of our good works could ever do on our own. Jesus has come in flesh and blood, God incarnate, to live the life that you and I failed to. When God's asked us to not sin against Him, not worship wrongly, even though that's our nature and choice, is to exchange His glory for ours, we would naturally, I have, I would, apart from God's saving, build my entire life on my desires and His gifts, the pursuit of comfort, the pursuit of power, prestige, fame. It's misplaced worship. You and I, we've been made to know, love, and worship God, not ourselves. Not his gifts. And so this misplaced worship, it deserves his wrath. We should be flooded with his judgment. And yet Jesus comes and lives perfectly when we failed to. And then he dies sacrificially to pay the penalty in full that we could never pay on our own. He suffered once for our sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And the only reason that Jesus is... we can look to him and say, I'm so confident that he will bring me to God, is not just because he lived and died, but because he rose from the dead. See, after three days, it looks like the ark of our salvation was sunk. (laughs) For three days, he was sunk dead in a tomb. A very dark, real death after his very dark and, and perilous death on the cross. But after three days, that stone rolled back. The new life from Jesus Christ walked out. That tomb was emptied. It was completely emptied. The throne is now occupied. When we look to Jesus Christ now, we have a risen Savior. We have someone who is on the throne. Someone who, when we thought there would be just a sea of death for us... We now have God's waters of new life and all who come to him will never thirst because he was flooded for God's wrath in your place on the cross. And now Acts 4.12 says, there is no other name given to men under heaven by which they must be saved except Jesus Christ. So the question I have to ask you, the question I feel compelled to ask you is, is he your savior? I'm not asking, is he the one you know about? Is he the one whose name is on your t shirt, your bumper sticker, your coffee mug? I'm not asking that. I'm asking, is Jesus Christ your Savior? Have you run to him for forgiveness of your sin? There's a difference between knowing about Jesus and things of the church versus depending on the Jesus who came to save the church by dying for her. Is he your Savior? Have you given him your sin, received his forgiveness, regardless if this is your thousandth time in church or your very first? If God is calling you to believe in him, he's using his word, his spirit, to point you to your ark of salvation. Don't delay or deny. Don't delay or deny. This is really good news. It ended up turning out really good for Moses as well. Let's go back to our story in verse 5 to 10. God's work of salvation continues. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came, we're back at the river now. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. Of course the baby was crying. He's in the Nile by himself. He's four months old. She took pity on him, like any human would, and said, "This is one of the Hebrews' children." At this point, I expect she'd take it back to daddy and he'd be dead. But no. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. All right, this is a crazy scene. This is one of the crazier scenes in God's uh, story, the theater that we've seen. So many unlikely characters doing so many unlikely things. First and foremost, whose name is said six times in here? Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter. It's like the last woman I would want to have her hands on the potential deliverer of God's people. Of course she's going to obey her dad and kill the baby. But she doesn't. She takes a break from her bath in the water in the river. She sees and hears the baby that's crying and says she took pity on him. She had compassion, despite being a Hebrew that she was supposed to kill. And so instead of this expected murder and death of the deliverer, there is salvation, even in the most unlikely ways, from the unmost likely person and via the most unlikely plan. Did you hear who enters the stage next? Miriam. Moses' older sister, about twelve years old at this point, and she proposes a crazy plan to Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh wants to take Pharaoh's daughter wants to bring Moses home, raise her. Miriam says, You can't breastfeed her. We need a Hebrew for that. Miss Pharaoh's daughter, guess what? I know a girl. I know a girl who can do this for you. You know who that girl is? Moses' mom. God has seen fit to orchestrate an event in which Moses is handed over to Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter consents to a 12-year-old Hebrew girl's plan to let the baby go back to Moses' mom, and she gets paid to feed him. She has paid for it. (laughs) Verse 9, Pharaoh's daughter says, go, go. Kind of previewing Pharaoh telling Israel later, go, get out of my land. Go worship your God. Go, take the baby, give him to this nurse that you know of, and I'll give you your wages. Guys, God works to save and he works against our expectations. He works in the most unlikely of circumstances through the most unlikely of people. And so is this the God that you trust when you consider the salvation of those you love who don't yet know Jesus? See, there's a lot of ways to apply this text, but in my life this week, that's how it hit home hard. Do I really believe that the God who can work and orchestrate all of history for His good, or for our, our good and his glory can work to bring about salvation in the lives of people I've been praying for my entire life. Honestly, it's hard to believe that every second of every day. But this story reminds me, God works to save. God works to save. Would you continue asking him to save? See, we see a God who saves in verse 1 to 10. Now we see a God who sanctifies in verse 11 to 22. Let's look briefly at the first part of verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up... All right, so Exodus moves fast. Verse 10, Moses, four months old. Verse 11, 40 years old. 40 years old. How do I know that? Acts chapter 7, verse 30 corroborates the timeline and says he lived in Pharaoh's house for 40 years. What happens to someone when they live in one place for 40 years? They begin to take on the ways of that place. You probably know who in this church has grown up in Carterville and or Southern Illinois, and who hasn't, because they exude ways of this area. If you know me, you've been around me for the last year, you probably know I don't exude too many ways of Carterville yet. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. And one of the ways I was recently teased about this is that I still lock my car door, like everywhere I go. Every, I come out to the church parking lot and people got their windows down and they have no, they're inside. And I'm like, what in the world? <laughs> I lock my car at the church, at Walmart, even if I'm visiting someone in Macanda and there ain't another house for two miles around. No one's going to take my car. But remember where I'm coming from, what ways I had acclimated to. I lived in a city of three million people where I had locked my house, my car, and my stroller. I locked my stroller to the front porch for good reason. And so, be patient with this urbanite in rural America as the ways of the city are rid from me so that I can further enjoy the ways of the country. And verse 11 to 22, God is ridding Moses from the ways of Egypt So that he can be used to help get Israel out of Egypt. He's ridding Moses from the way... He's getting Egypt out of Moses. So Moses can be used to get Israel out of Egypt. He's preparing the deliverer by sanctifying him. Conforming him to godliness, not Egyptian qualities. And we see his need for change in verse 11 and 12. So Moses, 40 years old now. He went out to his people... And looked on their burdens. He's talking about the Hebrews. Still identifies as a Hebrew. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian. This means murdered. He killed him. He struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Okay, so Moses wants to defend and protect, but he acts so Egypt-like. Pharaoh's the one killing, right? Right? The Hebrews wouldn't do that. Well, this Hebrew does. He brutally murders. He buries the guy. And, and he evidences this need that before he's going to be a faithful shepherd, he needs to be a patient protector. Isn't that true in your life and my life? It's true in every Christian's life. God is always working, not only to help us enjoy Jesus more, but to rid us from the ways of the world so that we can be used for his ways in the world. God is working to rid us of the ways of the world, so that we can be used for his ways in the world. See, Jesus is the one who, through whom we have salvation. He has come to set us free from the penalty of sin. He has come to live in us by the Holy Spirit, to break the power of sin. He promises to return to eradicate the presence of sin. That's good news. No more sin struggles in eternity or suffering. And so now, by his work in the Christian, he's working to free us from the ways of the world. The sin struggles that would otherwise keep us from being used for God's purposes. So the question for you this morning is, what ways of the world might God be working in and with you to rid you of? So that you could be used for his ways in the world. What patterns of ongoing sin or struggle where you're like, man, I know God wants me to do this in my life, but... I really don't want to. I'd rather go it my way. I'm more comfortable in this other alternative that is not really evidencing affection for dependence on God, but evidencing ways of my own life or ways of the world. How is God working and inviting you to be putting sin to death, to be killing the ways of the world in order that you could be used for his ways in the world? And we begin to see this change happen in Moses. Verse 13 Continues into verse 15. Let's go back to the text. When he went out the next day, Moses, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. So a domestic dispute now. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? Well, he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Well, then Moses was afraid. And he thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Yikes. Moses sees his two people fighting, Hebrews, tries to solve it. They say, get away, bro, you're bad news. Pharaoh just saw you kill someone. Or Pharaoh hasn't seen you kill someone. He's going to think we did it. And he's going to come for our lives. We want you away, as far as you can be. And then Moses hears that Pharaoh's after him, so he does the only thing he can. He runs away, flees to Midian, a desert, 150 miles from where he was, away from both people he used to call home. And there he is, among distant relatives of Abraham. But 150 miles takes a while to get there, doesn't it? When you're walking. What do you think Moses was thinking? What do you think he was feeling over that 150-mile walk to the middle of nowhere, not knowing where he was going? If I were him, I'd probably be thinking, I'm such a screw-up. I'm such a mess-up. I'm supposed to be this deliverer, and I just killed someone, and my own people don't want me. How in the world is God going to use a reject, a mess-up, a screw-up like me? You guys ever feel like that in your life? made a mistake, maybe you're overwhelmed with shame or guilt. Just this week, in parenting, almost every day this week, I've messed up. I've done things that I'm like, man, I love my children so much. How could I feel that way towards them? How could I be impatient? How's God going to use me for any good in, in their lives? And the good news of the gospel says that Jesus has not only died to save you, but he lives in you to change you. Not just parents, not just Moses, but all of us. See, in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Your judgment before God, before God is gone. It is taken care of because of what he's done for you. But also, in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. God is increasingly making you like His Son Jesus as you depend on and follow Him. As you behold the glory of the Lord, it promises, He promises He's transforming you from one degree of glory to another. Today, tomorrow, as you depend on Him, He works in and with you by His Spirit to make you more and more like Jesus and less and less like ways of the world. And that's really good news for the shame, for the downtrodden, for the desert-walking 150-mile, I feel like a reject and mess up people like we are. That's why Jesus came. Not because we can clean ourselves up, but because he died to clean us up and then use us for his purposes. And believe it or not, Moses begins to be used for God's purposes in verse 16. Let's go back to the text. Now, the priest of Midian, uh, Ruel Jethro, as we'll come to know him as, had seven daughters, and they came and they drew water and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds, these are some bad guys at this point, came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. This is a changed man. He sees a problem and he doesn't murder. He saves. The bad guys enter the scene and instead of killing and burying in the sand, he stands up, he drives them away instead of killing them, and then he waters their flock. This is a brave but not sinful man. Even in the midst of a very ordinary situation, we see evidence of extraordinary change. How might you be seeing in this, in this season, in this part of your life, God bring about extraordinary change, even through very ordinary daily rhythms? Maybe you're just going to your Monday 9 to 5 job, day after day, and yet, throughout the week, I heard this. I was so encouraged this week from one of our congregants. God is just increasingly burdening me with a love for my colleagues, with a desire to be patient and do my work unto the Lord. And I really like my job because of that. That's so cool. Maybe in the midst of parenting, I, all I feel like I'm doing is changing diapers and feeding whiners. And yet, God is opening my eyes To see these little kids as gifts. And I'm participating in the formative process that I would otherwise have no part in except for this opportunity. Maybe in the church, how might God be using ordinary seasons for ordinary, as if there's ever truly ordinary, ordinary seasons for extraordinary purposes in our lives together? Wow, you know what? I barely made it to Wednesday night dinner and class, but I loved it. I had a conversation that was so meaningful and Larry Harp just opened up God's word in a way that I've never understood it before. I'm glad I went. God using seemingly ordinary means for extraordinary. How might he be doing that in your life? Ordinary, extraordinary amidst ordinary. See, Moses was changed as he depended on God and then God calls him to even more ordinary uh, responsibilities before the big deliverance. Verse 18 to 22. When they came home, the daughters, when they came home to their father, Jethro or Ruel, he said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? Well, they said, an Egyptian delivered us. It was Hebrew, but he looked like an Egyptian at this point. An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. Well, he said to his daughters, where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him. That he may eat bread. And Moses was content. Content. He was content. To dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom. For he said I have been a sojourner. In a foreign land. Alright here's what happened. Jethro's seven daughters. They come home and they tell pops what happened. All of the good stuff. They got saved delivered. And, And dad's like what is wrong with you? There are seven of you. None of you are married. All of you are single. And this man seems to care about you and be able to protect you. Why is he not at our table eating with us? So potentially you might get married to one of them. And so they go, they get him, they bring him home. Moses stays for dinner, and ends up living there, being content to dwell with uh, Jethro and his family. He's given Zipporah in marriage, and he has a son, Gershom. But the emphasis here in verse 21 and 22, he was content. He was content. You would think someone in the glitz and the glam of Egypt for 40 years, in the middle of the desert now, would be discontent, if anyone. And yet this man is content because he's seen the Lord provide. He's following where the Lord has led him to in this season for 40 years, 40 years. From the age 40 to 80, Moses lives almost relatively a no-name life. He's a husband, he's a father, and he's a shepherd. And no one knows it except his family. And yet he was faithful. He was content. Content in the God who is faithful to bring about his purposes at his point and his, through his plans. Are you content in God alone? Seriously. This is the question He forces me to, God forces me to wrestle with like every Monday morning. When my to-do list runs wild and my anxiety goes through the roof, are you content in me? Am I enough for you? Can I say with the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. See, there is no greater joy in this life, no greater contentment, than knowing the God who lived, died, and rose to forgive you of your sin and wants to dwell with you forever. And the second you try to find it somewhere else, you'll be severely disappointed, and it won't last for a second. It'll last for an entire lifetime. Some of us will waste our lives trying to find contentment in our careers, our athletics, our academics, our ambitions, even as good gifts... Marriage, parenting, family, if don't let those become the center of your life, but be content in God while he calls you to accomplish his purposes through those things. Are you content in God alone? See, in Exodus 2, we see a God who saves, who sanctifies, and finally promises security. The hope that we need against every potential enemy in this world. Verse 23 to 25, the God who promises security. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Who's the star of the show? Who's the director of this play? It's God himself. The emphasis is on God, four times repeated. And before we hear about what God does, let's remember what the people do. They cry out amidst their groaning. They're in slavery, a hard, hard life in existence, but they're not crying out to themselves. They're crying out to God. The Exodus was preceded by prayer. The Exodus was preceded by, did you notice that? The Exodus is preceded by prayer. Prayer is the primary work of the people of God. We do not supplant God in his abilities or his power or his plans, but God invites us to cry out to him. Why not? This is the God who works to save and sanctify and secure. Cry out to God amidst your struggles. And know, as verse 24 continues, that the, di- the director, he sees, he hears, he knows his people. Verse twenty-four. He heard their groaning, like the ear of a father to uh, to his son. My wife, uh, she heard the cries of our sons through those doors. I didn't hear them at all. But they're both in the nursery this morning, and that's where I, am at. I guarantee you—that's where she is right now. She heard one of their cries, and uniquely from all the other cries in that room, she heard and she knew that's my child. I'm going. That's what God does with his children. I hear. I know them. I will go for them. And he continues on. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. That promise in Genesis 12 and 15. God never forgot. God doesn't forget anything. He remembers in the sense of moving to act. He sees the plight of his people and he says, I'm going to come down. In chapter 3, he comes down. And we're going to see the God who comes down next week. And then it says, God saw the people. God heard and he knew. God doesn't have uh, a time when he's sitting on the sideline. God is always active. He's never absent. He's always moving even if he's not explaining or showing it to us. God is active and he's never absent. He knows. He hears. He sees. He remembers. And so the question for us is, is this the God you're crying out to? Is this the God you're crying out to? the one who hears, who sees, who knows, who delivers. And let me remind you why you should cry out to him. Because the God who says, cry out to me, is the God who promises to dwell with you and his people for all eternity. See, the hope for the Christian is that Jesus has come to live, die, and then be raised unto new life. And this Jesus, the good shepherd, better than Moses, the good shepherd in John chapter 10 says, my sheep know my voice and I know their names, and no one's going to snatch them out of my hand. If you're truly in Christ, there is nothing, nothing that can separate you from his love for all eternity. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, Nothing in all creation, neither height nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor rulers, nor authorities, nor anything, anything, anything else. Try to think of something. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And Jesus up from the dead proves that God keeps his promises. He secured his son from death and secures you from eternal death if you believe in him. And he promises to return in Revelation 21. Christ will come back in all glory and dwell with his people for all eternity. That is the hope of the Christian. No more sin. No more suffering. Just security and contentment and joy in God. This is the God of Exodus 2. This is the God of the entire Gospels. The one who saves, who sanctifies, and secures a people for himself. First out of Egypt, now out of spiritual bondage. And so would you run to him? Would you enjoy him? Would you be content in him? And that's what I'm going to invite us to do as a congregation As we conclude our time together, we're now going to turn our attention. We're going to sing praises to this God who saves, sanctifies, and secures. We're going to take and eat the communion. If you are a believer in Christ, this is a shared meal for us as his his family. To remember and take and eat that his body was broken, his blood poured out for our forgiveness. And then we're going to do something we've never done before. We're going to cry out for and with one another in prayer. And I I invite you to pray for each other every week. But here's what I'm specifically going to invite you to do this, this week. And first service, it was incredibly powerful. And I anticipate it might be in this as well. If you have some way that you would like someone else to pray for you, I don't care what it is. There is no too small of a prayer either. But there's also a God who says, pray big prayers. If you have anything that you want someone else to pray for you over, just raise your hand or stand up as I'm praying, and if you're looking around and you see someone else with a hand up or or see someone else just looking like they would like someone to pray for them, why don't you be the person that prays for them? Because if you don't, I will. (laughs) But I think it would be so great if we took this time to pray for and with one another, cry out to God together amidst our difficulty. Does this sound good? Let's pray. I'll pray for us, and then we'll take, we'll eat, and we'll sing and we'll pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are the God who saves even amidst unlikely circumstances. You are the God who sanctifies using ordinary means for extraordinary ends. God, you are the God who secures. You have delivered a people to dwell with you, not just out of Egypt, yes, there, but also out of spiritual bondage for all eternity. So, Lord, we thank you for you, for the work your Son has done, for the work your Spirit does in us, for your paternal affection over us. You are a good God. We are thankful to know you, to love you through faith in Christ. And we pray now that this would be a a powerful time of crying out to and depending on you in all things. We ask all these things in your Son's name. Amen.